Halloween is a special time of year for all of us who are fans of the supernatural, true crime, and horror. So this year, we thought we'd make sure you had a creepy episode of the podcast to listen to every week during the month of October. So in addition to our regular episodes of the show, we wanted to offer two stories of Los Angeles that won't be included in the current Haunted Hollywood season of American Hauntings. So I hope you enjoy this. And by enjoy, I mean as only fans of cold-blooded murder and hauntings are likely to understand. Anyway, come inside the murder house and don't let the door lock behind you as you step over the threshold. It's possible you may soon go running out that door. In 1959, Harold Perelson seemed to be a man with everything going for him. He had a distinguished career as a doctor, a beautiful wife, loving children, and a wonderful home in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles that was ideal for what seemed to be the perfect family. And then on the night of December 6th, neighbors were awakened by the sound of Harold Perelson's daughter, Judy, screaming and banging on their door. When the police arrived, they entered the Perelson house and found Harold's wife, Lillian, dead in her bed, and Harold himself dead from a massive drug overdose. He'd apparently committed suicide. A copy of Dante's Divine Comedy was open on Harold's nightstand, highlighting a passage that read, Midway upon the journey of our life, I find myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. It might as well have been Harold's suicide note. But even with Harold and his wife dead and the surviving family members scattered across the country, the story of the house on Glendower Place in Los Feliz was not over. The house remained empty for decades, but it wasn't just a monument to that terrible night in 1959. It was also haunted. Harold Perelson was making a name for himself in Los Angeles before he purchased the Spanish Revival-style mansion in the early 1950s. He was a doctor and a professor of cardiology. He was a frequent speaker at conferences across the country and was considered an esteemed researcher by every big name in his field. He and his wife Lillian had three children, Judy, Joel, and Debbie. Life was good and their move to the house in Los Feliz signaled a bright future for all of them. The house was a mansion a real taste of old California. It was built on a hill with curved Spanish windows, gleaming white adobe walls, iron balconies, red tile roof, a ballroom, four large bedrooms, and even a separate servant's quarters. For a while, they were a golden family, but all that began to change when Harold's relationship with his business partner, Edward Schustack, fell apart. A few years earlier, the two men began working together to turn Harold's design for a new experimental medical device into a product for the hospital market. The device was built to make it so a syringe could eject fluids from small glass capsules, which would make injections much safer and make them less prone to contamination. Well, after the two men had worked together for about 11 years, things went sideways. Harold accused Edward of trying to steal his design and cut him out of the deal. Edward insisted this wasn't true, but Harold refused to believe him. The disagreement ended up in court and dragged on for more than two years. Harold demanded $100,000 in damages, which would be over a million dollars today. The legal fees in the case, combined with Harold's initial investment developing the device, nearly wiped him out financially. To make matters worse, he was only awarded $24,000 in damages, which was much less than he'd been expecting. Even worse, the accusations and civil trials destroyed the longtime friendship between the two men. Edward continued to claim he'd never tried to cheat his partner, 
And in hindsight, it appears he was telling the truth. Harold's accusations were likely the result of an undiagnosed mental illness, which would soon lead to something much worse than merely the end of a partnership. In the midst of their legal nightmare, the family experienced more trauma. The Perelson children were involved in a car accident while 16-year-old Judy was driving. It wasn't her fault, which sent Harold back into court seeking damages from the other driver. He sued for $50,000, but only received enough to cover the children's medical bills. Soon after this, Judy wrote a letter to her aunt saying, quote, my family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. Well, pressures continued to build for Harold. The famed cardiology professor suffered several small heart attacks, believed to be caused by the stress that he was under. Later, though, it would turn out the heart attacks were actually caused by several failed suicide attempts when he injected powerful drugs. His life had fallen apart, physically and mentally. In fact, around Thanksgiving in 1959, Lillian seriously considered having Harold committed to a psychiatric hospital against his will. If only she had. Less than two weeks later, on December 6th, Harold finally decided to end it all and take his family with him. Harold got out of bed that morning around 5 a.m. and found a ball-peen hammer in the workshop in the garage. He returned to the master bedroom where Lillian was still sleeping. The coroner's report later said that he struck her so hard with the hammer that it left an inch-wide hole in her skull. Tragically, the blow didn't kill her. She choked to death on her own blood while Harold continued his rampage. He left Lillian to die and went down the hall toward the children's bedrooms. He entered Judy's room first, hammer gripped in his hand. He swung it as hard as he could and hit her in the head, but the blow didn't kill her. Judy awoke in terror to find her father standing over her with the bloody weapon in his hand. Harold whispered to her, Lay still, keep quiet, he said. But the sound of the attack had awakened 11-year-old Debbie, who left her bedroom to see what was happening. Harold saw her in the hallway and walked to the door. Go back to bed, he told Debbie. This is a nightmare. He was certainly right about that. While this was happening, Judy had escaped from her room and made it out of the house. She ran next door to the neighbor's house and began to scream as she banged on their door with her bloody hands. The neighbor, Sherry Lewis, was already awake before they heard her knocking. She'd been startled out of bed by Judy's blood-curdling screams. As Judy had run across the lawn, she screamed, Don't kill me! over and over again. Judy's escape apparently made Harold rethink his plan of killing all the children. He'd finished his spree. He went to the bathroom and mixed Nebutal, a powerful barbiturate, with water and then used it to wash down 31 tranquilizers. By the time the police entered the house, Harold was dead. He still had the bloody hammer in his hand. The horror was finally over. Or was it? An aunt took custody of the children and the house on Glendower Place was essentially abandoned. It was sold in a probate auction to a couple named Enriquez, who never lived in it. Decades passed and the house gained a reputation that was partially true for being completely untouched since the night of the murders. Curiosity seekers who peered into the windows saw old magazines on tables, rotting furniture, and moldy boxes. Some of those items had been placed there by the Enriquez family who used the mansion for storage, but some of what could be seen through the windows did belong to the Perelsons, like the dust-covered Christmas tree, still decorated for a holiday that was never celebrated, and gifts that were never unwrapped. 
Is it any wonder that rumors spread that the house was haunted? No one lived in the mansion during the time the Enriquez family owned it, and when they passed away, the house went to their son, Rudy, who continued to use it for storage. He often visited, dropping off and picking things up, but he never lived there. In fact, he never stayed there a single night. But the house wasn't completely empty. Neighbors complained that squatters sometimes broke in and it was used for parties and drug-fueled raves. The police arrested prostitutes working out of the house on several occasions. Eventually, a security system was installed and while they may have slowed down the criminal activity, it didn't keep away the ghosts or the people who came looking for them. For more than 60 years, reports have circulated of ghostly events that occur in and around the house. A neighbor named Sherry Watkins had a friend who visited the house one night and accidentally set off the security alarm. For the next week, the burglar alarm at Sherry's house went off every night for no reason. Security company couldn't explain it, but Sherry believed she could. One of the ghosts had followed them home. And there have been other, more substantial reports. A common occurrence has been reports of hearing screaming and moaning in the early morning hours. Some have heard the disembodied voice of a woman screaming no, while others say they have heard what sounds like a young woman crying. There are frantic footsteps heard from the shadows, along with a frantic screaming that comes from nowhere, as if Judy's desperate escape from the house has left an impression behind that cannot be erased. Others claim to have seen faces staring out the windows of the house. Most common is that of an older woman, perhaps Lillian Perelson, who looks at them from an upper window and slowly vanishes. Many wondered what would become of the house. Considering its reputation, condition, and decades of vacancy, neighbors always assumed it would be torn down, but fate had other plans. After the death of Rudy Enriquez in 2016, the house went up for auction. The only couple who bid on it, civil rights attorney and true TV personality Lisa Bloom and her husband Braden Pollock, became the new owners for a cool $2.3 million. They planned to empty it of its past, renovate it, and restore it to its pre-murder house glory. Only it didn't work out that way. Just three years after the house was purchased, it was up for sale once more. They'd stripped it down to the studs, but had never lived in it. According to the listing, the owners are still looking for $3.5 million, quote, cash or hard money offers only. Of course, the listing doesn't mention that the house was the site of a grisly murder and that it might be haunted. California law doesn't require realtors to disclose that information after three years, but neighbors, true crime buffs, and ghost enthusiasts alike all know what happened behind those doors. And they know the story of the Los Feliz murder house probably isn't over quite yet. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode from the American Hauntings podcast for the Halloween season of 2020, the scariest year ever. It was edited and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. Have a happy and haunted Halloween season.